you know, a, a lot can happen in 90 days. In, in 90 days, you can, you know, change jobs, move out of the state, start a new job somewhere else. You can change your worldview, change how you think about people, and, and maybe even in some relationships, change how people think about you. So that's really why we decided to take these 90 days to, to walk through the life of Jesus from his birth up until his death and resurrection on Easter Sunday. Uh, we're quickly approaching that point, which I'm excited about. But we really feel like this is an incredible opportunity to get to know more about Jesus, who he is, and in particular, uh, what he wants for us. Because we, we believe that God isn't here to take something from you. He's not here to want something from you. He wants something for you. Last week, we had a really interesting discussion on what it would look like uh, to kind of broaden our table. We use this, this illustration of a lunch table line. And when you see that video, for some of you, that brings back good memories because, you know, you had your friends and your people, wherever you found yourself. If you were an athlete, you had, you know, your athlete friends, your jocks. If you were a cheerleader, you had your friends. If you were, you know, really smart, you had your own, your own group of friends. But for some of you, it brings back great memories. You think, man, I had my people. I knew where to sit. I knew where to go. For others of you, as I've found through uh, conversations, it brings back nightmares. I didn't know where to go. I, I didn't have people. I was left out, and every week it was just a struggle of, where do I sit? Who are my people? And as we've had conversations about this, what I find really interesting is this doesn't just happen when we're young. It's not like this ends in middle school or high school, does it? In adults, we see it all the time. What we found, and this is, this is more human nature, and this is what I said last week. This isn't something that church people do or people outside the church do. This is something all people do. We surround ourselves with people who like us. Right? There are people. There are the people that, that like me and I like them. They're, that's who I want to surround myself with. We surround ourselves with people who are like us. But not only that, we also surround ourselves <coughs> excuse me, with people who are like us. We find our people, right? the people who don't just like us, but who live like us and act like us and talk like us and believe like us and look like us in some cases. And all throughout the world, what we find is, is <coughs> we're creating these bubbles, these isolation groups of people who live and breathe and act and talk and feel and live the same way. What I find really interesting, and we discovered this last week, as we walk through the life of Jesus, we find that that's not how Jesus was really at all, that Jesus wasn't like that. Jesus consistently surrounded himself with people who weren't like him, who didn't believe like him, who didn't act like him. <coughs> God, excuse me, I woke up Thursday with this awful cold. I wasn't sure I was going to be able to make it through, but I made it through first service, and I'm going to power through this one. So I got a cough drop and some tea, and we're going to get through this together. <clears throat> but what I find really interesting about Jesus is that he consistently surrounded himself with people who weren't like him, and he took a lot of flack for it. And not only did he surround himself with people who weren't like him, but Jesus wouldn't like that we do that. He wouldn't like that we surround ourselves with people who are just like us, because he came to reach people who weren't like him. And he wants us to engage with people who aren't like us. And, and this whole idea, this illustration of, of who's sitting at your table, could you broaden your table? Could you extend an invitation? Could you have a seat for somebody who doesn't believe like you believe, who doesn't act like you act, who maybe isn't a part of you, but somebody that you can perhaps engage in conversation and say, you know what, we don't think the same way, we don't live the same way, we're not of the same religion, we don't wear the same clothes or listen to the same music, but you have a seat at my table anytime you want. You can come and you can sit with me. And that's challenging for us because it's going to break down a lot of our ideals. And, and, and in today's culture, we're so divided over politics and, and lifestyle choices and, and the groups of people we associate with. He says, no, no, I, I want you to see past all of that. 
And I want you to extend an invitation to somebody who's not like you. And we hear that, we're like, man, Jesus, that's, that's tough. How do we do that? How do we do that? And that's where I want to go with the talk this morning. How do we become people who say, you always have a seat at my table? There's, there's always room for you here. We don't look the same. We don't believe the same. And you come from a different background. But I want you to sit at my table with me. See, that, that's what Jesus was like. And I think that's what he's asking us to be like, his church. But so many of us miss it. For those of you that, that are, are, are Christ followers, <clears throat> you're going to hear this message and it's going to challenge you. For those of you who aren't Christ followers, who don't go to church and you just came because of an invitation or, you know, it's, it's a Sunday and maybe that's what people do. They go to church. Maybe you find yourself here looking for something. My guess is, as we get into this talk this morning and we kind of un unravel this, this is going to be one of those things that you've hated about Christians, that you've hated about Christianity, that you pointed to me and I said, that's why I never went. The truth is, what you're pointing out at us is exactly what Jesus would point out at us. I say, that's not what I want my children to be like. So how do we become people who say, I'm willing to broaden my table and I want you to come and I want you to sit with me? Well, <clears throat> we're going to start off with a little Bible trivia. If you've spent any time in church, this is going to remind you of, of years past, and you might hate this, and, and we kind of distance ourselves from all, all of those things that make us uncomfortable, but I figured I've made you uncomfortable for two weeks in a row. I've got to try this week, too. <clears throat> so I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to try to answer it. Here's the question. <clears throat> when Jesus spent time on earth, who were the group of people that he was in opposition with the most? When Jesus walked the earth, in, in, in relation to this idea of, of extending invitation and spending time with people who aren't like him, who did Jesus spend most of his time confronting and saying harsh things to, standing in opposition against? Who was that group of people? Religious people, church people, none other name for it, it's Pharisees. They were the Pharisees. These were the teachers of the law and the prophets, the religious people. These were, were, were me. They were pastors. And I hear this, and i got to tell you, <clears throat> I, I read the stories of Jesus confronting the Pharisees, and I love it, and it makes me laugh. And then I think, but wait a minute. If he were alive today, I would be on the other side of his finger as he pointed and he corrected and he said, you need to change. And, and for some of us Christians, we live and, and we walk and it's not just the teachers, it, it's, it's any religious people who, who, who kind of <clears throat> put themselves apart from everyone else. Look to me because I'm the example. And Jesus had a lot to say about those kinds of people. As a matter of fact, he had a lot to say to those people. And in one particular passage in, in Matthew, he, he starts off by, by giving these seven woes. And when I say woes, it's like, woe to you who do this. You know, that's kind of like the old way of saying it. Woe to you. Be careful. Dangers ahead for you people like this. He talks to the Pharisees and he gives them seven woes. We're going to read through some. This is found in Matthew 23. He says this, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. See, that's how we read it when we go through the scripture, isn't it? Well, what's interesting is, <clears throat> there's an exclamation point right there. It's more like Jesus would say it like this. Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites. I mean, there's emotion, right? That's what an, exc an exclamation point means. All you, you, you English teachers, grammar, right? There's emotion. He's a little angry. He's a little upset with the people that were there to lead people to his father. And what does he say? He says, you're a bunch of hypocrites. And is there anything worse to call someone? Like you people who say one thing and do another. In another passage, he calls them a brood of vipers. You people that, that bring poison 
when people need comfort. You people that bring judgment when they need mercy. You hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in the people's faces. You're there to keep the door open. You're there to welcome people in and usher them through. And instead, you shut the door in their face. You bunch of filthy hypocrites. I mean, he has, he has nerve. I admire his boldness. He looks right in the face, and he's not taking on like one, one Pharisee. He's taking on a, a religious empire. All throughout this land, there are Pharisees and religious teachers, hundreds of them, and he looks them dead in the eye. You bunch of hypocrites. Who do you think you are? Woe to you who would do this. Woe to you who should be opening the gate for my children, and you shut it in their face. I mean, he had, he had some nerve, didn't he? He goes on, he says, you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You've been so worked up about keeping the law, you've forgotten these other things that also matter to God. And then he finishes with saying, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Yes, you should have kept the law, but not without neglecting mercy and faithfulness and justice. You're so focused on good works and good deeds that you've forgotten what it means to love people. You're so focused on if people uh, can stack up their set of, be- of good behavior that you've forgotten what it means to show mercy and grace and compassion. You can't have one without the other, he says. You've got to do both. You need to be people of mercy. And I think that's what Jesus is saying to us. I think that's what Jesus is saying to you, and I know that's what he's been saying to me. I want my people, I want my church to be known as people of mercy. But you've been so focused on your deeds and on your, your self-righteous acts. It's, it's just like you've been so worried about that. You've forgotten this, this thing that's so important to God. I wish my people, I wish you would be people of mercy. And then Jesus sets up this, this relationship even more. He says this earlier on in the gospel, gospel of Mark. He says, on hearing this, Jesus said, and he says this line over and over again in different ways. <clears throat> he says, it is, <clears throat> excuse me, it is not the healthy who need a doctor. Now, all, all of you, you worrying moms and dads, he's not saying avoid your health care checkups. Don't do your well, well child checkup. Those things are important. He's saying, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's not those who know they're good who need a doctor. Who needs a doctor? The sick. You go to the doctor when you're not feeling good and you don't know what to do and you're sure something's wrong, but you don't know what to do and you don't have the answer. He said, those are the people I've come for. The people that know they're missing something but don't have it. The people that know there's something more, but they're not sure what it is. I haven't come for the healthy. He said, I've come for the sick. And then he goes on, he says, but go and learn what this means. And I almost imagine he says this with a little bit of sass. Or he's like bobbing, he's like, go, learn what this means. Figure this out. And then he says this, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's pulling something a prophet said, and he's pulling it out to remind them about who God is. This is God. Don't, don't forget, yes, God is the, is the God who gave you the law. But he's also the God who says, I desire mercy over sacrifice. Yes, you can, you can sacrifice. Yes, you can give up things. But here's what I want in my people. I want you to be people of mercy more than I want you to be people of sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call the sinners. 
in the Jesus table over and over and over again. We see him sitting with sinners. In fact, the Pharisees, they would stand on the outside and look in at Jesus sitting at the table and they would mock and they would scoff and they would say, who is he to eat? And they would almost say it like, I could just, like, you know, you got a picture like these evil, like sneaky, slimy people. Who is he to eat with these people? Who does he think he is eating with these people? And here's a question when I read this that I think all of us have to have an answer to. Are we the people sitting at the table with Jesus? Or are we the people standing and pointing and mocking and scoffing? Who are you to eat with those people, Jesus? Where do we find ourselves? Sitting at the table, opening a seat for someone who needs it? Or pointing and mocking? See, ultimately, we have to ask ourselves, if this is what Jesus wants, how do we do that? How do we become people who open our table for those who aren't like us? And you know, we don't like being called a sinner because that's like a, derog- that's a negative term. But the truth is, for those of us who would say, you know, I'm not a church person, I, I don't know Jesus, I-, I guess I would consider myself a sinner, it's good news for you. Because if Jesus were alive, Jesus would love you and he'd take you out for lunch after service. And you would probably really like him. But for those of us who claim to be Jesus followers, man, this is hard. And it's uncomfortable, isn't it? When we think about Pharisees, there's this term that keeps coming to mind over and over again, and it's self-righteous. This is how the Pharisees were. They were just self-righteous. They deemed themselves by their own hands righteous. And here's what self-righteousness means. Because of my actions, I'm just better than most people. Because of the way I live, because of the clothes I wear, because of the food I eat, because of the places I go, I'm just better than you. And you know, as, as pastors, we don't struggle with this kind of thing. And most other people do, but not, not us. No, I mean, if you read the newspaper, who's the worst? People like me. Because it's so easy to be self-righteous and to say, but look at all the good things I've done. Look at the people I've counseled. Look, look, at, look at all those people I've helped. Look at, look at all of my good deeds, Jesus. Surely I'm better than them. So you say, what good are your self-righteous acts? I desire mercy and compassion. You see, the truth is, we do all this to create a sense of superiority, that somehow I'm better than you. That somehow because of the way I live and the choices I've made, and and, and there's there's just something about me problem is, self-righteous people never understand what it is to extend mercy, because mercy comes to those who need it. And self-righteous people don't need it. They think they're it. We think we have the answers. We think we are the answer to the problem. I don't need mercy. I'm good. Look at all the good things I've done. So a Pharisee, a religious person, the self-righteous people... They don't, they're missing out. They don't know what it is. They don't know how to be merciful. Self-righteous people are unable to see their need for mercy. And when you don't see your need for mercy, it's impossible to offer mercy to someone else. I, I was thinking, you know, usually I try to give like a one line, like here's the takeaway, know this line and you're good. It's usually one big takeaway. <clears throat> this week I couldn't narrow it down to one. So I have three for you. <clears throat> here's the first one. We're going to put these on the screen. You can't pass on something that you don't yourself possess. 
You can't pass something on to someone else if you don't possess it. I can't give you money if I don't have money. I can't give you food if I don't have food. I can't give you mercy if I don't have any mercy. Here's another way to say it. <clears throat> you can't extend what you haven't experienced. I have no idea what mercy is like. I don't need mercy. How could I ever offer mercy to you? And here's maybe the most blunt way to say it. You can't give what you ain't got. You, you just can't. You can't give somebody what you don't have. And a self-righteous person has no mercy because they've never had a need for mercy in their eyes. So there's no way for them to be merciful for you, for, to you. So when Jesus says, I desire that my people would be merciful, a self-righteous person is impossible of doing that. They're incapable of doing that because they've never experienced mercy for themselves. So how do we broaden our table? How do we open up and say, there's a seat here for you and for you and for you, regardless of what you believe, regardless of how you live, I want you to sit here with me. How do we do that when we don't know mercy? It's almost like you have to experience something to be able to give it. And as I was thinking that this week, I, I, I'm kind of a, a simple person. I like pictures. If there's a choice of reading a book or watching a movie, typically I watch a movie. I listen to audiobooks now because it's just easier. I'm, I'm simple that way. So I think, what's a, what's a simple way to, to show people what, what it's like to experience something? Once you experience it, you just feel a need for everyone to have it. And, and the, the best way I thought to do it is, is this. <clears throat> if you know me, if you've been here for a while, you know I'm not a minivan guy. I, I have a minivan. Um, I don't really care to have a minivan. <clears throat> but what you, you may not know is, besides the minivan, for about 12 years, I've been driving <clears throat> a really small Toyota Corolla. Now, I'm a big guy, and you might not know this, but Toyota Corollas aren't built for big guys. So, so you got to imagine a big guy like me squeezed behind a Toyota. Like, there's barely enough room for me and my backpack to get in. Like, like it, it literally just got me from here to home, and that was it. It was, it was a small car. But it was a faithful car, and to be honest, I was content with it. I didn't need much. And then, you know, God bless, he sent a deer along, and, and the deer <laughs> legitimately kill, killed my car. <clears throat> um, so I found myself in need of something different. And, and you know, my, my friends have had trucks, and in particular, Brian always had a truck, and God bless him, whenever I needed to pick something up or Tanya wanted me to go pick something up, um, I'd, I'd call him and I'd borrow his truck or he'd come with me. But I never had one. I didn't know the, what it was like to drive a truck. I just knew how much other people who had a truck enjoyed it. And, and then this came along, and I got myself a nice Ford F-150. And, and having it, it's like, man, now that I have it, everyone should have a truck. <laughs> and I know you, you see this, you go, but Jim, that's expensive. Like, I'd, I'd like to have that too. So but before you cast all your judgment on I me, mean, there's two things you need to know. First of all, it's used. Second of all, I have a Tanya. And if you don't have a Tanya, you need a Tanya. My wife, Tanya, is the world's best negotiator. If you're a car salesman, if you're any kind of salesman, and you see her coming, you need to hide. <clears throat> During the negotiations, it was so uncomfortable. I had a pit in my stomach, and I was like hiding behind. I couldn't look the guy in the eye. It was, like, I felt bad for him. I wanted to pat him back, but bro, it's okay. Like, <clears throat> she's just tough as nails. God bless her. Got us an incredible deal. And now I drive this truck around, and it's like, but now I can go do these things. Now I, I can drive places, and, and I can fit. It's amazing. It's become like my mobile office. In between meetings and driving around town, I can, I can pull out my Bible and read or pull out my laptop and get work done. And I see it, I was like, man, is this what life was like without it? You guys might not know this, but my old Corolla had a tape deck. Some of you are too young to even know what a tape deck is. <laughs> I've got Bluetooth in this thing. I can listen to things that are on my phone. It's amazing. 
And I drive around now and I'm like, man, everyone needs a, a truck. Everyone needs a good truck. It's just, I mean, if you live in Maine, let's be honest, you've got to have a truck. I, I love it. And you meet people like this, that they just, they find something and, and they just love it. And they love it so much. Everyone knows. You got to have it. You got to get a, tr- you got to get this thing. It's amazing. It'll change your life. And that's important because it's the same way with mercy. You don't really know how amazing it is until you experience it. And then once you experience it and once you taste how good it is, you want everyone to know. Jesus gave us this incredible illustration in the scripture. <clears throat> His illustrations, we call them parables. Parables are, are a Greek term that kind of combines two words, para and bolo. And para <clears throat> basically means to come alongside, and bolo means to throw. So Jesus, in, in all his brilliance and infinite wisdom, would give a teaching that no one would understand because no one's as smart as him. And then to help people understand, he'd come alongside and give a story. He'd tell a modern-day story that they would kind of throw alongside what he taught so people could, could come along the journey and understand what he's saying. He gives us this incredible illustration in Matthew. It's, it's a brilliant parable. And to be honest, if you're a Christ follower, it's one of the most convicting parables I've ever read. It's called the parable of the unforgiving servant. And it goes alongside this whole idea of if you're going to offer something, you need to experience it for yourself. And once you do and once you taste it, you've got to let other people know. So he starts the story off like this. This is found in Matthew 18. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. There's a king and people owed him money. They owed him a debt and he wants, he wants his money. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him, get this, 10,000 bags of gold. I don't know how much gold is in a bag, but even if there's one piece, that's 10,000 pieces of gold. I mean, that is a lot of money. This isn't a small debt. This is a huge debt. He calls the servant in and they bring him before him. And since he was not able to pay, of course, like, I don't know who's sitting on 10,000 bags of gold to pay the debt. <clears throat> Obviously, the servant can't pay. The master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that they had be sold to repay the debt. Now, now this sounds really odd to us. Like, who would do that? But in this century, that's what they would do. If you couldn't repay, they would kick you out of your house, they would sell your house, and they'd basically do an auction in the street. They would just sell everything you had. And if everything sold and you still couldn't pay back your debt, they would begin to sell your kids, your wife, and then you. And all the money would go to the master. So this is what this man's facing. At hearing this, the servant falls to his knees before him. And when when you're in a situation where you have no answer, we have no way out. You begin to do things you think are completely ridiculous and completely embarrassing. And that's what this man does. He begins to beg. I can't pay it. He begins to beg. <clears throat> Be patient with me, he begged. And I will pay back everything. I want you to remember those words because they come back later on. Be patient with me and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him. He had mercy. He felt compassion for him. And he canceled the debt. He didn't like cut the debt in half. Say, okay, we'll go from 10000 to 5000 He didn't say, I'll give you six more weeks, 10 more weeks, a year. He canceled it. He erased it from the books. Man, you owe me nothing. Go on your way. <clears throat> he canceled the debt and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him not a hundred bags of gold, not even a piece of gold, a hundred silver coins. So it's a lot less than what he owed the master. It's far less than what he had just been forgiven of. 
And, and you hear this, and before we get any further, I'm going I'm to ask you, what do you think this guy should do? I mean, he's just experienced grace and mercy like no other. Like, if you have any kind of debt, you know it's hard, and, and it's heavy, and it weighs on you. He had an exceptional debt, and he'd been forgiven, completely wiped away. You don't owe, I mean, imagine your credit card calling you tomorrow. You don't owe us a thing. He experienced that kind of mercy. And he runs into his buddy who owes him 50 bucks. What should he do? Jesus tells us that he grabs him and he begins to choke him. You're like, he put his hands on him? Yeah. He grabs him and he chokes him and says, pay me back what you owe me. Is he wrong? According to the law, no. According to the law, he could demand his money and that man needs to pay it. But something doesn't like, feel right to us, does it? Something isn't setting right with the story. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient and I'll pay it back. Be patient with me and I'll pay everything back. He used this man's own words against him. Give me a little bit of time, ma'am, and I'll get you the 50 bucks. How should this man respond? What should this man do having experienced the mercy he experienced? I'll give you a hint. He doesn't respond the way all of us think he should. He refuses. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay all the debt. And in this culture, that's a death sentence because you couldn't get enough work in prison to earn enough money, to save enough money to pay off the debt. He gave this man a death sentence over like 50 bucks when he had just been forgiven that debt. And we hear this and it's appalling, isn't it? It's like, how dare he? What kind of man would do such a thing? And I imagine as Jesus is telling the story, his first century audience is feeling the very same way. How dare he, Jesus? Let me know who he is and I'm going to go stone him. But it wasn't just his first century audience. Jesus says in the story, the other servants saw what had happened and they were outraged. And they went and told their master everything that had happened. And the master's mercy ran out. The master called the servant in and said, you wicked servant. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. And then I love this question. Look what the master asked the servant. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I have had mercy on you? You were just given mercy. You were just forgiven an incredible debt. You felt the weight of what you needed, and I gave you that mercy. You felt the weight of that mercy, and you respond this way? Shame on you. Who do you think you are? I mean, you, all the questions that we're asking ourselves. The master's facing a servant, says the very same thing. Like, do you have mercy amnesia? Did you suddenly forget what I've done for you? In anger, Jesus finishes the story. His master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And then Jesus looks at his audience and says, and says something that, that to me is just the most deeply convicting thing of the whole story. He says, hey, this is how my Father in heaven is going to treat any one of you who've been forgiven and do not show forgiveness, who've experienced mercy and do not show mercy, who've experienced grace and do not show grace. Man, and for those of us who follow Jesus, that's heavy. I can feel the heaviness in this room just hearing those words. So how do we become a merciful person? 
How do we become the kind of people that says, man, you have a seat here at my table, regardless of what you're like? Maybe it's by experiencing mercy ourselves. Maybe it's by feeling all that mercy costs. Because the truth is, mercy will cost you something. But until you fully experience the weight of mercy, you will never be able to extend the gift of mercy. Until you realize what it costs, you don't understand the weight and the magnitude of what mercy is. And it is, it's heavy and it's expensive. You know what it's, 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 it's expensive for? It's expensive for employers. You say, how long do I have to show mercy to an employee who comes in late day after day after day? How long am I going to get him, let him rob from me? It's expensive. How much mercy is enough? It's expensive for the government. Who says, at what point do I cut off assistance? We've given it for year after year after year, but nothing's changed. But you know who I find it most expensive for? For a parent. For a parent who has children who, who aren't living the way they think they should be living, maybe with a different lifestyle or a different belief system, or, or, or maybe they're living in a way that they're just, they're ruining their life and their future. There's, there's some addiction, there's something that, that's got a hold of them, and it's just ruining their future, and you know it. How much mercy is enough mercy? At what point do we say, man, enough's enough? You've got a seat at my table, but, but I can't finance your addiction. I can't finance your issue anymore. I mean, really, let me ask you this question. How much mercy is too much mercy? The, the honest truth to this answer, and you're not going to like this, is I don't know. Because I've never experienced the end of Jesus' mercy. There's never been a time when Jesus has said to me, Jim, enough's enough, you're out. How much mercy is too much mercy? At what point do we say, man, enough is enough? I know that we have an answer for it. But I know Jesus is trying to make one thing incredibly clear. I want you to be a person of mercy. And the only way you do that is by experiencing and then offering it to someone else. Don't ever get yourself in a position where you feel like, man, enough's enough, you're out. Don't ever get yourself in a position where you feel like you're no longer welcome. I've showed you enough, you're done. He says, because when you do that, you're no longer treating people the way I've treated you. And you're no longer treating people the way I want you to treat people. How much mercy is too much mercy? Have you ever experienced the weight of mercy? And when I say the weight, like th think of the weight of what it costs to forgive someone who you feel doesn't forgive. Think of what mercy cost God, our Father. It was costly. He loved you so much that to offer you mercy, his son had to go to the cross and die. It cost him everything. There's some weight to that. There, there's some heaviness to that. Have you experienced the weight of mercy? As a parent, facing that situation with your child, it's heavy and it weighs on you, doesn't it? As an employer, trying to make the right decisions for your company, it weighs on you. Because you care for people, and you want them to be here, but they just keep falling short. If you're ever going to offer mercy, you have to experience it, and you have to understand the weight of what it costs. Every once in a while, there's, 
There's a, a story that pops up in the news, just a riveting story. It captures the attention of, of everyone in America. And you think to yourself after you hearing it, man, this is just this is one of those stories that, that would is just such an incredible illustration of mercy. Last year, we had one of those stories. <clears throat> you probably uh, have heard about it, <clears throat> about the, the sexual assault case with a, a doctor and uh, the female gymnastics team. <clears throat> it was one of the worst cases of... <clears throat> Um, sexual assault crimes against minors in the history of America. 150 women stood up and faced their abuser, their assaulter, and, and made accusations against him in court. One of the first people to make a public appearance, her name was Rachel the Hollander, and, and she's just an amazing person. She loves Jesus. She's a mom. She has children of her own. I know she has some daughters because she talks about them in her speech. She knows what it's like to, 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 to experience the weight of mercy and to experience the guilt of, of not feeling good enough. And when she comes into the courtroom, she faces the man who ruined her life. And she makes some incredible, powerful statements. I'm going to read you just a snippet of it, just about two minutes. But she goes on for about 30 minutes, and she has this incredibly eloquent, beautiful speech. She doesn't cheapen what he did. As a matter of fact, I think she makes it heavy and, and, and hard and almost impossible and weighty. Because that's what we want, right? We want justice. When somebody does a crime, we want them to experience justice. We want them to pay for what they did. We're willing to show mercy when someone cuts us off in traffic. We're willing to show mercy when someone gets mad and flips us the bird. We're willing to show mercy when someone has a bad weekend and drinks too much and makes a bad decision. But when somebody commits such a heinous crime against an innocent child, man, that's where I draw the line. She faces the man who assaulted her as a child. And she makes these incredible statements. Understanding mercy and justice together. She says this. In our earlier hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and now she's facing Dr. Larry Naser, looking him straight in the eye. She says these words. You've spoken of praying for forgiveness and so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you've read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love. It's portrayed by God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love in this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can somehow erase what you've done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you've done in all of its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you've seen in this courtroom today. If the Bible you carry says that it's better for a stone to be thrown or tied around your neck and for you to be thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble, you have damaged hundreds the Bible speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt, and listen to this, will be crushing. And then I love where she goes. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you as well. I pray you experience the soul-crushing guilt 
so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me. But get this. But I offer you that today as well. I mean, those words, just, just let that sit on you for a minute. That is, that is powerful. And that is heavy. And for some of you, the idea of mercy and showing mercy is going to cause you to do things that are completely counterintuitive, that are countercultural, that stand in the face of your emotions to offer mercy to someone who doesn't forget, who doesn't even ask for it, who doesn't deserve it. And the idea of you being able to offer that person mercy is just too much for you to handle this morning. How do I give him mercy? He doesn't des- if you knew what he did to me, if you knew my story, See, here's what I know. We were all guilty of something. And Jesus said, but it's because I love you so much that I'll pay a debt I don't deserve to offer you mercy. You don't even have to ask. I'm offering it to you. Am I a merciful person? I mean, you may be good people, you may be moral people, you may be a great employer, you may be a great mom or dad, you may do nice things during the week and think, man, look at all the good stuff I've done. Jesus demands more. Jesus would ask you, that's great, but are you merciful? I'm thrilled you take care of your kids. I'm thrilled you serve in church. I'm thrilled that you go every week. I'm thrilled that you give to to organizations that help your community. That's awesome. But are you merciful? Have you experienced mercy? And are you showing it to other people? Because, man, if you're not, you're missing it. Your table's small. Your view of God is small. Jesus said it's so much bigger than that. For some of us, that's hard, to, that's hard to even wrap our heads around. So here's what I want to do. I've asked the worship team to come, and they're going to close in a song. And I'm going to give you a moment just to reflect on that. Have you experienced God's mercy in your life? The weight of what that mercy costs him. And that's what this whole song's about. <clears throat> the cost, that, that it, what it costs God to show you the mercy that you've experienced. And when you begin to experience the weight of it and how much it costs him, comes a little easier to say, man, I got to show that to someone else. So here's what I want you to do. As they sing through the first verse, I just want you to sit and I want you to contemplate on that. Have you experienced the mercy of God? And if you have, what are you doing with it? If you haven't, maybe that's exactly what you need to do this morning. And then we're going to stand and we'll sing together and we'll close it out after.